We have arrived at what we might call the centerpiece of 1 Corinthians 5, found here in verses 6 through 8. And for those of you who have uh, paragraphs, my Bible has four paragraphs, but this still, as far as content, sits about the middle of the chapter. And, and very often in these ancient writers, what you'll find is that the middle of the argument usually carries the emphasis. It, is, it might not be the closing point, but it's usually the emphatic point. Everything is built around this centerpiece. Remember that Paul is pressing the church in Corinth to deal with the sin in their midst. And we saw last week he's, he's pressing them to use the power that had been given to them by Jesus Christ to deal with sin in their midst. And we saw that for a church to fail to use that power and exercise that power is sin. And that's what he's pressing them to do. He's urging them to do what Christ had called them and commanded them to do. Now today, we move into this central part. And we see that central to Paul's reasoning is the nature of the church in light of the work of Christ. Why should a church deal with sin? Well, there might be many reasons, but ultimately it boils down to this. Who the church is in light of what Christ has done. And that's what we'll see. The nature of the church in light of the work of Christ really carries the emphasis. So as Paul unsheaths, we might say, the spear's head of this argument, we find him drawing upon three major truths in this center section. Number one, the danger of sin. Number two, the nature of the church. And number three, the culture of the saints. The danger of sin, the nature of the church, and the culture of the saints. So number one, the danger of sin. Here in verse 6, the Apostle of Christ explains that leaving sin unaddressed is dangerous for the church. Leaving sin unaddressed is danger for a church. Notice what he says. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Notice that illustration. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? A leavening agent, we usually think of yeast, a leavening agent is added to a lump of dough to make it rise. And those of you who have done any baking know that you do not have to mix one part leaven with one part dough. A little leaven will work for a much larger lump of dough. Well, why is that? It's because as you knead that dough, the leavening agent spreads throughout. It comes into contact with all of the other uh, parts of the dough, and it spreads. It does its work in a spreading way. So in urging the church to address this sin in their midst, this is his illustration. He's trying to illustrate to them the danger of sin if you just leave it unaddressed. Just don't do anything. And therein lies the danger. A little leaven 
leavens the whole lump. Or we could say, if we wanted to apply it to the spiritual application, a little unaddressed sin can permeate the whole church. That's his point. Now, this does not mean that this particular sin is catching like the flu and that within six months, if we're not careful, all of the men will be married to their stepmoms. That's not what he's saying. Nor is he saying if you, if you don't address this sin, then eventually everybody, or technically even now, everybody is guilty of this one man's sin. That's not what he's saying either. What he's saying is that if sin is left unaddressed, if that becomes acceptable, we know there's sin, we're just not going to do anything about it. If that becomes the acceptable attitude of the church towards sin, that attitude will spread to other sins. It'll spread and permeate the whole life of the church. When the attitude towards sin is relaxed in one instance for any reason, well, eventually, that same attitude is going to spread to other sins for often lesser reasons. You personally, if you get in the habit of turning a blind eye to some what you might call little sins, if you get in that habit of saying, oh, it's, it's just a little sin, eventually, there'll be big sins. But you'll still be saying, well, it's not that big and you'll begin to make that same excuse. Or eventually it might spread to all sin. And you'll say things like, well, everybody's a sinner. It can't really be that big of a deal. And that attitude, that uh, apathetic attitude towards sin will spread. And that's what he's saying. A little sin left unaddressed will, left, will open the door to many other sins which will then have free reign among the people as this one has had. As far as we know, this man has had an open door in and out of the church. He's been able to come and go as he pleases. We don't see that anybody has addressed him or tried to deal with the matter. It's been unaddressed. The, the reality is they had continued to boast and maybe even had been boasting in the fact that this man was still in their church. Sort of a free grace attitude. Come to our church. We accept everybody. Hey, we've even got a man who's married to his stepmother. Come as you are. We don't, we don't care. We, we let sin go. That, that might have been a part of their boasting. And this will spread to other things. Paul says this is true really for every church. And this is the reason that the bar for our treatment of sin or our handling of sin, the bar must be set at a biblical standard. That standard has to be maintained. And then there also has, has to be frequent reminders of that standard. Here's what we do. Here's how we deal with these uh, sins in the church. So there we have the danger of sin. If you don't address it, it will spread. Number two, Paul addresses the nature of the church. The nature of the church. And this is it might be the most important reason why sin has to be dealt with. What is the church? Who is the church? The church is not just this man-made institution. We didn't all just decide to get together and, and bring whatever we want to the table and act however we please. No, the church is a living organism created by Jesus Christ Himself. Christ is the head of the church, not us. So we have to deal with sin the way He has commanded us to. We are a people in union with the Son of God. When we gather here to worship... This is a gathering similar to the ancient 
nation of Israel drawing near in the solemn assembly before the tabernacle of the Lord, coming close to God as a congregation. It's not just an individual matter. It's a corporate matter. The Lord's Supper, we call it communion. Communion with who? Communion with Christ, yes, but with one another. It is the essence of our union and communion with one another that we come to the Lord's table together. It's a corporate thing. We are a people in union with the Son of God. Now, if verses 6 through 8 are the centerpiece of this chapter, then we could say verse 7 is the very heart of Paul's argument. The the absolute heart. Notice what he says in verse 7. Cleanse out the old leaven, there's the command, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened for Christ. Our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Notice that in addressing the nature of the church, first he tells them what to do. Again, cleanse out the old leaven. But now he's speaking in in terms of that illustration. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. And again, the meaning is you must deal with the sin, specifically this sinful man. Purge him. Cleanse him out. Now, the the reference to old leaven is just pointing out the what we could call the residue or the, the, the old attitude towards sin that is common to all men by nature, that was common to all of us before our knowledge of God and even the, the remaining corruption of sin that dwells in our members still to this day. That's the old leaven, their, their old ways or their old life, the old man. He's saying you must be rid of that old self of sin. Get rid of those old ways of thinking about sin and treating sin and coddling sin. The days of toleration must come to an end. We don't tolerate sin anymore. That's the old way. That's the old you. Purge that out. Get rid of it. Get rid of those old ways. Tells them what to do. And then he tells them who they are. You really are unleavened. Cleanse out the old lump that you may be a new lump. As you really are unleavened. Now, is he saying, you really are without sin? I don't think that's what he's saying. At this point of writing, that man is still in the church. And they're all sinners themselves. So I don't think it would be appropriate to to read as if Paul were saying, cleanse out the old leaven, get rid of the sin, that you may be a new lump, as you really are without sin. I don't think that's what he's saying. What Paul means here is that the people of God, and, and, and in particular the church in Corinth, are a cleansed people. The people of God are a washed people. The people of God are sanctified in Christ Jesus set apart from the world through our union with the Son of God. We are called to be saints, that is, holy ones. The people of God, Christians, are categorically, definitively not what we once were. We're not that. We're we're not like them. So it's not acceptable for a Christian to say, well, everyone sins. That's true but you are categorically not like you used to be. So you ought to be different. The way the world lives, 
that, that is no longer a justification for how you live or think. It's irrelevant. And we, we, I think we could go so far as to say even my fellow brother and sister, the way that they live and conduct themselves, that is irrelevant when it comes to the bar that Christ has given. Well, well so-and-so does this. That doesn't matter. What does God say? That's our standard. We're, we're not like we once were. The church of Jesus Christ, true saints, are not like the world that we were snatched out of. We have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's Son. We have been crucified with Christ, buried with Christ, raised with Christ. We are new creatures in Christ. We are seated with heaven in Christ. We are not like we once were. We are an unleavened people, a cleansed people in that objective sense. I, I think it's very similar to the, the situation you see in the upper room where the Lord is talking about washing their feet and Peter says, you're not washing my feet. And he says, Christ says, well, if I don't wash you, then you're not clean. And Peter then goes to the other extreme. Well, we'll wash my head and hands as well. And he says, no, one who's already been cleansed, you're already clean. You just need to wash your feet. There's already an objective cleansing that has taken place, but then there also needs to be this ongoing subjective washing of the feet, that remaining humanity that is associated with our nature in Adam. That's what he's saying here. He's doing sort of like he does in Romans 6. He's exhorting the saints to be what they already are. You are a cleansed people, objectively, but you know you still have to regularly be cleansing yourself of sin. So deal with sin as, as what you really are. Cleanse yourselves, for you are a cleansed people. Who tells them what to do? Purge out, cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump. He tells them who they are. You really are unleavened. And then he tells them why they are what they are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Why are we the way that we are? Jesus Christ. Christ. Christ has made us what we are. It was His death which stands in the place of ours. It was His sacrifice which satisfied the justice of God and pacified the wrath of God. It was His blood which has purified the people of God. The church is who she is because of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. His work produces that change in us. It is the cause. That's what he's saying. Now notice how he takes that illustration of the leaven, sort of a general statement, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. But now he's going to carry that picture of leaven and now make a specific application of it to the relation of leaven and bread in the Passover. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Now, most of you are aware, the Passover was a meal which celebrated the uh, liberation of the children of Israel from Egypt. The Passover lamb was to be killed. And its blood was smeared with a, a, a cluster, a, a bunch of hyssop, was smeared upon the doorposts of the house of that family. And that night, the, the night of the original Passover, when God Himself came through to bring judgment upon the nation of Egypt and kill the firstborn sons, 
wherever that blood was applied, God would what? Pass over. And everybody in that house would go to sleep that night and they would wake up just as they were the day before. But wherever that blood was not applied, they would wake up to the firstborn son of that family dead. Everybody in the family would wake up except him. And they would run to him and they would shake him and they would say, wake up, wake up. And he was cold and lifeless because he had died. The illustration, I think, is, is pretty clear. Because the lamb had been slain, the firstborn sons would live. And then what happened? In light of that final act of judgment from God, what happened? Pharaoh said, get out. And they were set free. They were liberated from Egyptian bondage. That's the original Passover. Now Paul says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Christ, he says, is the true Passover lamb. Those lambs were pointing to Him. And we, the church, this is interesting. It shows the typological fulfillment. We are the true children of God. The Israelites in Egypt, they were a picture of us. Paul's writing to Gentiles. We are the children of God. Our Passover lamb has been slain. What does that mean? We have been delivered from death. The judgment of God passes over us because it fell upon Christ. And we are delivered from our bondage to sin. We're not slaves to sin. Paul says in Romans 6, 17 and 18, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. You see, Christ has accomplished in His death, or, or what Christ has accomplished in His death, makes us who we are. The people of God are a people free from the bondage of sin. And being freed from the bondage of sin means we are capable, the only people in the world, in the history of the human race, the saints of God are the only people who are able to deal with sin. But also we are the ones who thus have the obligation to deal with sin, our own sins and even those that would infiltrate the church. We alone have that power and we alone have that freedom. We've been set free. We're not slaves to sin anymore. And that's what Paul's saying to the Corinthians. Christ has died. You are free. So render the death blow. Lay the axe at the root of the tree. Deal with the sin. Because sin should not have free reign among the people of God. So this is the nature of the church. A holy people ransomed by the blood of God's Son. That's who we are. Therefore, we must deal with sin. It's dangerous... That's sort of the negative, but also there's a positive. Who are we? What has Christ done? Then we must deal with sin. Number three, we see the culture of the saints. The culture of the saints. Paul now describes the whole culture. A better word would be lifestyle. Lifestyle didn't rhyme with danger and nature. So I went with culture of the saints of God. He says in verse 8, Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So now Paul takes this Passover illustration a little bit further. You notice he 
He picked up leaven. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Then he went straight to Christ as the Passover. And if you were maybe not familiar with the Jewish history, you might be thinking, man, he's all over the place. We've got bread, leaven, we've got Passover. But you, those who've read the book of Exodus know these things go together. The Passover meal also began a week-long celebration, feast, or festival called the Festival or Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, the rule was you can't eat any leavened bread, but it actually went a step further. During this time, every bit of leaven anywhere in, in the nation had to be removed. So every household had to go through, search all of their cupboards, or wherever they kept things, and all of the leaven had to be purged from the territory. It couldn't even be around. So it wasn't that they just couldn't use it in their bread. God said, I don't want it near you. Purge the leaven. The Passover began a seven-day period of eating unleavened bread, and no leaven was to be found anywhere in any home among the Israelites. So if we... We're just thinking of this in, in its historical meaning when he says the festival. Well, that would be the festival that follows the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The old leaven was any and all leaven that they already had. And then unleavened bread would be the bread that they were able to eat for the duration of the feast. But Paul's using this as an illustration for ridding the church of sin. As he's already said, Christ is our Passover lamb. Our Passover lamb has been slain. So, thinking of the, the celebration itself, we are, we've already gone through that first day, that meal of the Passover itself. The great and final Passover has already taken place for the people of God. So using Paul's analogy then, when he says, let us celebrate the festival... This is just describing the entire life of the Christian after they come into contact with and are joined to Christ the Lamb. When he says, not with the old leaven, he, he, he references some sins there. We'll talk about those in a minute. He's talking about the remaining corruption and the sin that once characterized us and, and that still uh, wages war in our members. The unleavened bread is the life of holiness and purity. So Paul says, in essence, let us therefore live out the rest of our lives as Christians, not nourishing and cherishing and holding on to and offering free reign to our old corruption and sin, but rather let us live according to a life of holiness and purity. He says, look at what's happened. Jesus Christ, the great and final Passover lamb, was crucified for us. We have been delivered from the death angel. We've been released from the bondage of sin. And if that's the case, then our lives ought to be characterized by daily ridding ourselves of sin and walking in holiness. Matthew Poole says it very simply, the Jewish feast of unleavened bread prefigured all the days of a Christian's life. 
And we could probably even go further if we wanted to and say that we're all looking forward to that great and final eighth day, the, the, the eternal Sabbath when we are brought back together with the bread from heaven and we enjoy uh, celebration with Christ forever. But the Christian life and the life of the Christian church is to be a, a veritable feast of unleavened bread, as it were. We're to search out and find out every speck of remaining sin, and we purge ourselves, and we purge our homes, and we purge the church of remaining sin. He says, let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil. These both signify wickedness, sin, sinfulness, and we could divide up the words if we wanted to or put them together if we wanted to. They're, they're practically interchangeable. The idea is generally just sin, wickedness, hostility toward God and toward men. Paul's saying our lives should not be characterized by these things. Let us celebrate the festival not with this old leaven, that, that old way of life. Our, and our churches should not be a safe space for this kind of living. living. Now, does that mean that unbeliever, unbelievers and the wicked cannot enter the doors and hear the gospel? No. Remember, we're talking about the confines of a covenant community where there are boundaries. Those who are in are expected to be purging this leaven. We don't live that way, but rather our lives should be with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Sincerity means honesty of mind or intention, freedom from hypocrisy, freedom from disguise or false pretense. Truth is that which is based on reality as is defined by God. Again, these are near synonyms just describing the genuine, honest, humble life of a Christian who is daily cutting off the hand and gouging out the eye of sin, mortifying the flesh and fleshful tendencies. That's the way we ought to live. Paul says, in light of what Christ has done and who we are, the church should not be characterized by unaddressed sin. The church should be characterized by honesty and humility and purity. That is the culture of the saints. We're not like the world. We're different. So what can we learn from these verses? Three truths. The first one is short and they will get increasingly longer. Three truths. The first is that the church is to be a holy community made of holy people. As individuals, we are to be about the business of cleansing our lives of sin. And as a church, we have the duty to cleanse out sin. Now, we might not be as intentional or, or proactive, detailed in a corporate setting as we are in our own lives the church life would not be very enjoyable if we knew that everybody was always just walking around watching for a sinful tendency or, or a potential sin. That's the way we ought to be with ourselves. We deal with ourselves that way, but maybe not that way the same, exactly the same in the church. But nonetheless, we're to be a holy people. We watch out for one another. And when, especially when we see sins that we know are dangerous for the souls of our brothers and sisters, we are to be watching out for them. The church is to be a holy community made of holy people. We have a duty to cleanse out sin. And if it gets to the point 
of what's happening in 1 Corinthians 5, the church has a duty to act with the keys of the kingdom in executing church discipline. That's a part of being a holy people. And as we're going to see as we study these types of things in our our evening study, this is very often not a short process. It, It takes time to go to your brother and tell him his fault between you and him alone and then give time to hear back and wait to see if there's true repentance or not and then to go with two or three others if that be the case and then to wait and give time and then to tell it to the church and have the church give the admonition and then wait and give time to see if there's true. That, that takes time. It, this is not the, a process we just fly through and drop the gavel and cut people off. No, it's, it's a serious, sober, extended thing that requires As we see here, mourning, true mourning, prayer, and thoughtfulness. But all of that is for the purpose of becoming a holy people. The church is to be a holy community made of holy people. Number two, we see here that this is because of what Christ has done. The church is to be a holy community of holy people because of what Christ has done. Because Christ is our Passover lamb, we must be about the business of cleaning out sin. Christ's work does not excuse sin, as some people tend to think. Well, if if Jesus has died and His blood washes us of our sins and He's he forgives people of sins, then as we see people were suggesting even in the days of Scripture, why not sin that grace may abound? I'll just live however I want to, ask for forgiveness, boom, it's done, easy transaction. The Bible never suggests that. It's the exact opposite. Christ's work enforces the need to purge out sin. On an individual level... I would say if if I belong to Christ or if you belong to Christ, you've been crucified with Christ. You were buried with Christ. You were raised to new life with Christ. You're a new creature. God says sin has no dominion over you. That attitude, well, I might as well sin. No, that's not a Christian attitude. That's the attitude of a lost person who's under the dominion of sin. And corporately... As a church, if we are a lampstand of Christ, what does that mean? That doesn't mean we live however we want to. That means Christ walks in our midst. Christ convicts us of sin and righteousness and judgment by His Spirit. Christ has given us the keys of the kingdom and the power to act and instructions on how to deal with sin in our midst. And we have to do it because of what He's done. Think about Revelation 2 and 3. Seven churches, all but two of them are are reprimanded. We don't read Christ saying, I know your works. You're full of this sin and that sin. But it's okay because I'm here and I forgive. No, He says, I know your works. And here are your problems. Deal with them or I remove your lampstand. Because of His presence, because of who He is, we deal with sin. And then number three, we learn here, that a relaxed view of sin will always have damaging effects. A relaxed view of sin will always have damaging effects. Charles Hodge put it this way. 
It is the nature of evil to diffuse itself. Now, some of y'all have had diffusers in your home. Maybe you still do. You, you put a drop or two drops or three drops of something in there and turn that thing on, and, and before long, the entire house smells with something you could have held in the palm of your hand or maybe even on your fingertip. It, it, it diffuses that, spreads it all over a little bit. It takes just a little bit and spreads it throughout the air of the whole house. Well, it's the nature of evil to do that same thing, to diffuse itself. If our personal lives, or in our personal lives and in the church, if we give an inch to small sins, we will eventually give a mile to much larger sins. That's just the way it works. Sin is like weeds. How do you get them to grow? Do nothing. Just walk by. They'll grow by themselves. You think about the early days of our nation when people came in on the east coast and then began to journey westward. And, and the pioneers would move westward. And there were places where at one time there, there, there was maybe no path. Well, what was the first path through there? Well, the first path might have just been a man and maybe a horse. But eventually, as that man settled and others came through, well, they had to widen that path so that they could get two horses and a wagon. Well, eventually, as people keep coming, people keep coming, and now there's travel back and forth, we've got to make this path as wide as two wagons so that they can pass by each other. Well, we come down through the decades, and what do we have now? There are places where there are intersections that take up m miles of square land where once a person just walked through by themselves. But because of the travel, because of the, the, the progress, it had to get bigger and bigger and bigger, and eventually it's wide enough for lanes and lanes of traffic and transfer trucks and trailers and all of these things to drive through. That's sort of how sin is. When you give it an inch to get through, if that becomes your attitude, I just want to get through here and see what's on the other side. I just want to see what's out west. Well, eventually... Other things are going to come through and it's going to get wider and wider and wider. That's the way sin works. Small sins which remain secret in your heart to you, God knows, but what we would consider secret sins will eventually lead to sins that bring reproach upon you, perhaps your family, perhaps the whole church culturally acceptable sins. Those sins that we justify by saying, well, everybody does it. Well, that eventually leads to sins, those things that are not named even among pagans. Do you think this man set out from the very beginning saying, you know what, I'm going to do what nobody else is doing. I'm going to strike out on my own and marry my stepmother. We know that's not the case. More than likely... It started out with a little bit of lust in his own heart, a little bit of self-gratification, the, the attitude that whatever he wants, he should get. And eventually it led to this, that even the lost world was saying, we, we're not touching that with a ten-foot pole. But that's how sin works. It diffuses itself. It has damaging effects, all because of this attitude that says, it's not that big of a deal. A relaxed view of sin will always have damaging effects. A small sin left unaddressed will offend your conscience. If you're a Christian, your conscience will be offended. You know when you sin. If you don't know when you're sinning, you're not a Christian. 
most of the time we know when we're doing, if we would just stop and, and be cognizant about what's happening, we can say, you're right, I, I probably shouldn't have done that. We know. But when you go on and you say, but, but I will, you have just sinned against your conscience. And if you trace the, the language of the Scriptures, you offend your conscience a few times and eventually your conscience becomes scarred, it becomes calloused, it becomes seared over where there's no feeling left. And you just act as you please. No sin will be off limits if you make a habit of offending your conscience on little sins. Sins, even little sins, put a separation between us and God. Psalm 66, 18 says, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. God would not have listened to my prayer if I said, I'm keeping that sin. Little sins put that separation between us and our God. God will not draw near to those who are clinging to sin. And think about it, apart from the nearness of God, if God doesn't come near, then we have no power against the indulgence of huge sins. We can't do it by ourselves. If we can't even fight one little sin by ourselves, we definitely can't fight massive sins alone. And if God says, if you're going to hold on to that little sin, I'm washing my hands of this, then a big temptation comes. Well, are you going to call on God now? He says, I've washed my hands. You've got to deal with the little sins. But it spreads. Relaxed view of sin always have, has damaging effects. It diffuses itself. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And so while we might think that we're, we're going to give place to just one small sin, what we've done is we have just barely released the door latch to a whole world of sins, just with one sin. The same is true for the church. Sin puts a separation between the church and God. Christ is not going to walk amongst a people who don't deal with sin, who cherish sin in their midst. And what happens? We lose His presence. We lose His power because of some small unaddressed sin. And then we lose His presence and His power and His protection in dealing with much more grievous sins. It separates from God. It drives a wedge between us and God. Indulging sin leads to bigger and bigger problems Always, always, until we address it. Unaddressed sin ruins the power and usefulness of the means of grace as it diffuses itself. Preaching becomes useless. Prayer becomes powerless. Singing becomes lifeless. Scripture reading becomes meaningless. And we wonder... God, why will you not come near me and feed me? I'm, I'm doing all of the right things. Why won't you feed me? And very often we immediately begin to blame it on a thousand other things. Well, the preacher this, the singing this, the songs are this, this is this, and nothing's right. And if, if, ever, if everybody else would just get their act together, I could have my time with God. The problem might not be everybody else and everything else. It might be because of that one little sin that you've indulged. A little bit of wasted time. Just a little flare-up of a bad attitude. Or a little bit of pride that you continue to nurse. Or 
a secret sin that you keep going back to on occasion. Maybe it's not every day anymore. Maybe it's not every week anymore. But every now and then, once a month or once or twice a month, you go back and indulge that secret sin. Or one area of hypocrisy or one tiny little root of bitterness toward another brother or sister that you refuse to rip out. You kind of like being opposed to somebody else. Those little sins. And they ruin the means of grace for us. A relaxed view of sin has damaging effects. It offends the conscience, separates us from God, neuters the means of grace. What are we to do? Well, we are to live as what we are in light of what Christ has done. Exodus 13, 7. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. What are we to do? We make a diligent search. We leave no stone unturned. We clean the sin out of our lives. Those things that we think, if, if I change this, I don't know what I'm going to do with myself. I, I'll, I'll be a different person. The Lord says, exactly. Cleanse out the sin. And we do that by the power of the indwelling Christ. Remember, our Passover lamb, literally our Passover, has been slain. We're free. You can be clean. You can do it. If you're a Christian, you have the power to do this and live this way. You can do it. And if each of us would take this seriously, what happens? The church becomes purified. When other people ask, why have you made such a change? Why aren't you the way you used to be? Or why is that church the way that it is? And we would say with the children of Israel, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. He set me free. The blood was on the door. He passed over. I lived to see another day. Even before the daylight came, we stood up and we got out. We left. I was set free. That doesn't have any hold on me anymore. God brought me to Himself. God condescended to us and has given us His holy law. You see the picture of the Christian life displayed there in the Exodus where God brings us to Himself. He says, now I'm going to give you my law and my commandments to walk in them. You're already mine. Now walk. That's what we do. Purge out the leaven through the power of Christ. Our Passover has been slain. Let's pray together.